From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's Plastic Week, our coverage of a material that's supposed to make life easier, but now gunks it up. Water bottles and yogurt cups are examples of single-use plastic that litters the landscape. So today, we get perspective from a global food brand, Danone, whose products include Avion and Silk. Its North American headquarters are in Colorado. Then, they've been called zombie mines. They're all over the West. Uranium and coal mines that are closed on paper. Cleaning up a mine is costly, and giving workers you know, long-term benefits is costly, and a much cheaper option is to hit pause. Plus, in Colorado Wonders, did race play into the sentencing of two white teens and two black teens in a 1995 murder? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Plastics. You're plastic. Cold, shiny, hard plastic. It's Plastic Week on our show. Conversations about a material that's supposed to make life better, but now jeopardizes it. Today, we hear from a global food company that has contributed to the problem and now sees itself as part of the solution. For example, they've turned to sugar cane as an alternative packaging material. I'm talking about Danone, whose brands include Avion bottled water, Danon yogurt, and silk soy and nut milks. The company's North American headquarters are in Broomfield. Deanna Bradder leads sustainability for the company here. Hi, Deanna. Hi, Ryan. Nice to see you. So last year, volunteers with the Break Free from Plastic movement did a global audit of plastic trash, and they logged which brands they saw most littering the environment. Danone was fourth behind Coke, Pepsi, Nestle. Uh, Let's start with what responsibility Danone has to clean up current plastic pollution. Do you you feel that responsibility? Absolutely. So we are a business who is committed to health of the people and health of the planet. And so we absolutely believe that plastics are a challenge and a major challenge of our time. And we see ourselves as not only um, bringing great healthy food to people, but figuring out how to bring it in a better way. Okay. So to the uh, plastic that is currently in the environment, do you have programs going on to clean that up? Absolutely. We have a lot of them. So we have a responsibility um, and we've made some commitments over the last many years. And right now we're really focused on a few areas. One of them is designing for recyclability and reuse. So how we create our products, how we innovate our products and bring them to market in a creative way. That's obviously where the problem starts. Absolutely. So at the source. Absolutely. Then we also have a commitment that by 2025, our packaging will be reusable, recyclable, or compostable. And that's 100% of our packaging portfolio. So we are absolutely looking at this as a system um, and a responsibility to design better and then to participate in making sure our products are recyclable. And then the third piece is we have to fix the systems that aren't allowing for recycling to happen or the systems where our packaging and other packaging is leaking out into nature and making sure we're focused on recovery and preventing that from happening. Okay, so that's the fuller picture. I want to go back to this point about what is already littering beaches and, you know, streets across the world. What obligation do you have to that trash? 
Yeah. So our focus is around circular economy. And that's the idea that instead of one-time use, take, make, and throw it away, um, that we are creating a system of reuse. And so our obligation is to get those materials out of nature and have more recycled content in our product so that we're reusing it. So that waste becomes a resource that can be reused. Okay. Give us an example of how that works. Are there projects today to take what's in the environment and get it recycled. Absolutely. So at a global scale, we have a lot of funds where we're working with communities, um, specifically marginalized low-income communities where people are looking for resources and ways, and we know pollution is a problem. So we have one project in Brazil um, through one of our programs where it's actually a waste picker program where we are um, incentivizing the community to gather the waste out of the environment, and then we are reclaiming that material and using it as recycled content back in the system. So Brazil has a lot of this plastic pollution. They also have the need for jobs And you see the need for recycling, and you're trying to bring all of those things together. Absolutely. Okay. So that speaks to the plastic that's already in the environment. Let's talk more about the production process, these one-time use containers. I know that for the dairy-free line called So Delicious, uh, specifically, I think, almond milk, the bottle is now 80% sugar cane. Why sugar cane? Yeah, so really excited about this innovation because you can run into situations with plant-based materials where it comes from a plant, but it's not recyclable or it contaminates the recycling system. So in this case, with the sugarcane replacement and having it be 80% made of sugarcane, it's actually the same basic plastic material that it was and can be recycled right alongside other bottles, um, other soy milk or or plant-based almond milk um, packaging. Why sugarcane? So sugarcane is highly renewable. Uh, it grows fast. It's an annual production. And um, we believe that it's a really great alternative. There are a lot of different types of bio uh, materials from potato starches to corn bases. Um, and we are absolutely committed to experimenting with all of them with a keen eye that we want to make sure that we're not disrupting food systems, um, that we're not taking uh, essential materials or creating more complexity. This is about sustainable solutions all around. I think what I hear you saying is, for instance, if you decided to make something out of corn, might it compete with a food source? Is that what I hear you saying? It could. Uh, We're working with specific suppliers, specific growers, and making sure that we're not creating that complexity in the food supply chain. And that presumably the sugarcane is sustainable. It's not, you know, mowing down rainforests to create sugarcane fields. Absolutely. One of the goals at Danone that's really incredible is a commitment to zero deforestation by 2020 over all key commodities. That includes sugar, uh, palm, a variety of ingredients. Okay. Danone sells bottled water, which to many epitomizes the perils of single-use plastic. So why don't we talk about Avion, whose logo depicts this pristine snow-covered mountain peak. We now know it's raining microplastics in a different set of mountains, the Rockies. What are Danone's plans for, like, Avion bottles going forward? So Evian is committed to a 100% circular brand by 2025. 100% circular by 2025. So about six years. And uh, explain what that means. Yeah. So right now... Uh, they are carbon neutral. So they're offsetting and reducing. So the plant that those pristine mountains on the bottle represent, the source and the uh, manufacturing plant there where it's bottled right from the source, uh, is 100% renewable energy. All of the transportation, the majority of it is by train or boat. And when it's not, it's off.
off, and all of it is offset. Um, and then really looking at the plastic itself. So right now, Evian is on average 25% recycled plastic. Uh, we have some bottles just launching here in the U.S. that are going to be 50% recycled. And we have a goal to be 100% made of recycled PET, recycled plastic, uh, before 2025. Is bottled water ethical? Yeah, it's a it's a big challenge. So at a global scale, we know that water access is an issue. Uh, and for consumers like us here in Colorado, and, uh, you know, we always try to use reusable, but what we know is that healthy hydration is critical to a healthy life. And so we believe there is a place for bottled water, but there is a need and a responsibility that we hold in all bottle water. Uh, water bottle manufacturers hold to really do our part to design a different system that is not going to be contributing to plastic use or plastic waste as it is today. I think it's easy to rail against packaging, but of course, packaging keeps food safe, fresh, shatterproof. You know, when your kid drops it, food also has to withstand the shipping process. Can you help us understand the challenges you face reducing packaging? Let's look at yogurt, for example. I know that's something you've tried to lightweight that verb to lightweight something. Mm-hmm. I like that. Uh, what are what are the challenges with yogurt, for instance? Yeah, I think with yogurt or with any package, what we're looking at is how to design for safety, how to design for longevity. So it it's on the shelf and brings the best product to the consumer. And something like light weighting is really critically important. Let's take out all the excess package. But you have to walk you, a really... You're trying to do some of that. Yeah, you have to walk a really fine line because if you take out too much weight and you end up where your product gets loaded on a truck and is crushed, you're wasting all of those resources to create that yogurt, to create that milk, um, to bring it to consumers. So one of the great examples we have is with yogurt cups and you might have noticed in your own refrigerators, most yogurt companies, including uh, Danone as a leader in this, remove the plastic lid that goes over the foil for yogurt cups. Um, so you don't get that anymore. Most yogurts are just a, pe- a peel foil lid. Um, and that's how we bring it to consumers. So it reduced a lot of material use. And it also brought a new innovation to the marketplace. These are some of the conversations happening at Danone, just one of the major global food companies. Jenna, thanks for sharing this with us. Thank you. Deanna Bratter, she's Senior Director of Public Benefit and Sustainable Development for Danone, North America, based in Broomfield. Okay, several listeners who've heard our Plastic Week coverage recommended a podcast to me. I listened, and they were right to recommend this episode. Uh, It's NPR's Throughline, which looks at the history behind the news, and the episode is called The Litter Myth. At its heart is a journalist and filmmaker named Heather Rogers. She wrote a book called Gone Tomorrow, The Hidden Life of Garbage. And here's just a taste of the podcast. How did the responsibility for keeping the environment clean fall on us, the consumers, rather than the companies that make the waste? So to find out why and when this guilt-ridden feeling began, Heather says we have to go back to a time before there was so much waste. I wanted to understand, like if you're sitting, you order a takeout meal and you're sitting there after you're done and there's the bag and the container and the napkins, I wanted to know how did that become normal? Like how did that become okay? Because it's like very different than the way people ate and handled food 100 years ago. 
So what about like the 1940s, 1950s? How did people eat and drink things then? You would drink your soda, your beer, your milk, and then take the bottle back to the store or the milk delivery person would pick it back up the next day from your doorstep or whatever. And that was the norm. Every day, we place our empty milk bottles on the doorstep, knowing that by tomorrow, our empties will have been replaced by full bottles of milk. And slowly that starts to change. So what happens is there's all these forces that come together after World War II. And they've been kind of like building before that, but it's just you just have this like rush of consumption. First thing I'm going to do after the war is get a vacuum cleaner and a maid to run. I want a car. I don't care how much it costs. And this massive capacity for manufacturing. Yes, cars, radios, vacuum cleaners, nylons, juicy steaks. It sounds almost like a dream. A taste of the litter myth. It's an episode from The Through Line, a podcast by NPR. And thanks to the several folks who recommended it to me. You can hear other stories from Plastic Week in the Colorado Matters podcast. And tomorrow we'll wrap up with Colorado's connection to ocean pollution. You can also follow my plastic diary of shame on Twitter at CPR Warner. Last night I shared the plastic product in my home that I am most embarrassed by. A loophole in the law means mines can be open technically on paper, but lie dormant for years, potentially polluting the environment. Colorado has dozens of uranium mines that fall into this category, and there are many more, including coal mines, across the country and the West. Reporter Mark Olalde investigated this for the Center for Public Integrity, and thanks for being with us, Mark. Thanks so much. Great to be here. I think of mining as a boom-bust industry. We've certainly seen that in the history of Colorado. Doesn't it make sense, then, to have a way to keep mines on standby? You're totally right, and it does make a lot of sense to keep them on standby. Unfortunately, that has to come with some sort of limitation. We can't uh, we can't leave communities near mines in kind of a confused limbo forever and ever. And the issue I was looking at specifically was when that standby temporary cessation or idle, whatever you want to call it, when that status gets abused and doesn't become temporary after all. When you say abused, is the idea that mine owners are trying to avoid all that's involved in a true closure and cleanup? You know, it's tough to put words in the mouth of a mine owner, but I will say that cleaning up a mine is costly and giving workers, you know, long-term benefits is costly. And a much cheaper option is to hit pause. And when you hit pause per regulations, you know, you can stop a lot of these payments. So certainly what activists and environmentalists and labor rights people are are telling me is that, yeah, this is a convenient way to save costs. And uh, it certainly looks like some operators are, are taking advantage of that. What do mine operators say, though, is the reason that they take this step? Well, coal mine operators aren't the quickest to answer my calls. Um, but the ones who have spoken to me, you know, have mentioned that it's okay to do because it's kind of ubiquitous in the industry, um, which is certainly an argument. And on, on the uranium side of things, I actually had the pleasure of sitting down with a few uh, uranium mine owners in in Colorado. And 
And they were a bit more upfront saying, hey, uranium's not coming back. There were some legal maneuverings over the past decade or two in the uranium industry that allowed kind of this pausing to go on even longer. But, you know, in Southwest Colorado, they're, they're actually saying, you know, we understand that, that uranium's not coming back anytime soon. And we're hoping that our mines can mine a completely different mineral. Ah, that would be present alongside uranium. Exactly. Like what? Well, in southwest Colorado, uh, there's an element called vanadium, and vanadium can be used in certain types of pretty powerful batteries. So oftentimes, you know, these owners will kind of rope in this discussion of, well, renewable energy and actually mining is a part of that, which will fall down a rabbit hole of pro or anti-mining arguments. But at least in the Colorado mines, not so much in the case of other uranium mines, there is this glimmer of hope. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it a roaring fire of hope, but a glimmer of hope. And why is it that they say uranium will never come back? You know, there's a number of reasons that uranium and nuclear power are are no longer kind of a mainstay in American generation. Nuclear is still important. It's still there. But a lot of the uranium now is sourced from abroad. You know, a lot of the health issues implicit in uranium mining and uranium mining districts in the U.S. have taken the toll, I think, in a public psyche, you know, in just communities want for uranium to even come back if it does. And at the end of the day, this is market-driven, and uranium prices are not high. They had a bit of a spike in recent memory that that since dissipated very quickly, and the price has just not been high enough, and projections don't show it getting higher. And if you don't have a price, miners are not doing it to save the world. They're doing it to make money. And so if you don't have the price for uranium, you're not going to have the mines. All right. Well, back to this idea of mines being sort of idled, uh, be they uranium or coal. What are some of the environmental concerns of that middle space? That middle space is, I think, a really good way to put it, because that's kind of where the zombie, are you alive, are you dead kind of thing comes into play. Zombie mines, I think, is how you refer to them. I can't take credit for that. That's coming from environmentalists. It's just, uh, I think they uh, found an interesting word to discuss. But these these quote-unquote zombie mines... The issue is they're just not being cleaned up. So on one hand, whatever pollution, water pollution, air pollution, etc., is ongoing, continues to be ongoing because there's nothing addressing it. On the other hand, it's tough to exactly put your finger on what health implication, you know, what person with what cancer comes from what mine or tailings pile or, or other waste pile because there's so much in these mining districts. There's so much historical pollution that's just kind of over and in and around us at all times. Um, but what we do know is that there are certain ways that we could be addressing this pollution, and it's just not being addressed. And so water continues to flow uh, out of these mines. And if it's windy, dust can continue to come out there, and shafts continue to be open and can be dangerous for people who are nearby and could fall in. There's So there's just all of these unaddressed issues that continue unaddressed for long terms. Well, in charge here is the U.S. Department of Interior's Office of Surface Mining Reclamation and Enforcement. Uh, I wonder how that fits on a business card, but um, have they tried to do anything about this? So that office, or or OSMER, as uh, the D.C. crew calls them, they're in charge of coal mining, uh, including coal mines in Colorado, and they've certainly tried to address this. The first attempt came in 1991, And they've just been stalled or stymied or halted every step of the way. And the most recent attempt, the Trump administration, two months after taking office, quickly put on the chopping block, uh, pulled any attempts to revamp this system. 
And I was able to access uh, some previously unpublished documents from within this agency, Osmer, that were essentially a survey of coal mining regulators from around the country. And the majority of them, according to these documents, said, hey, this is a problem. We should be addressing it. We should be putting a time limit on how long you can be idled. And, and so on the coal side of things, there's been a lot of trouble trying to get any regulations passed on this. Can states exert some control here? Like, does Colorado have a limit uh, in state law about how long something can be idled? Yes. I mean, a lot of mining is actually delegated to the states, which in a lot of places is the problem. A number of states in the coal industry, believe it or not, have passed laws that say we can't pass laws that are more strict than anything the federal government put out. And so they're halting themselves just in case any crazy progressive legislator wants to address this issue. Colorado has, in a number of senses, a better mining laws on the metals and uranium side of, of things. They do put a cap on, on how long you can stay idle, and that cap is 10 years, where if you go just across the border in New Mexico, that cap is 20 years, or you go the other direction to Utah, and that cap, as long as you submit certain applications and permit status revisions and show, quote-unquote, good cause, well, then your good cause says you can just keep idling for as long as you, you know, you've asked for and been approved for. So Colorado has certainly tried, and there was actually a recent court decision, which is one of the, the reasons I jumped into this investigation, uh, a court decision earlier this year that said, all right, uranium industry, you very much overstayed what this 10-year cap should be. Let's start cleaning up. So some of this in at least Colorado might slowly start being addressed now. Because of that ruling. Exactly. What else surprised you about this investigation and what other questions still loom? It was very interesting from as far you know west as Washington State. And I traveled to uranium mines in the Four Corners and coal mines you know, in Virginia and in West Virginia. There was a very similar story among very different communities that was mining built this community, but mining is not the future here. And how can we use the closure process, the cleanup process, the end of life of these mines, how can we use it constructively to actually create something that these communities can have jobs, can have a reason to be uh, where they are? And that, I think that's part and parcel with the protecting the, the labor interest in some of these, these areas. So that very much struck me that what started as an environment uh, investigation quickly became a lot more workers' rights and, and community building. Well, thanks for being with us. Great to be here. I appreciate the interest. Reporter Mark Olalde investigated mines that are put on pause, sometimes for years. His story was published by the Center for Public Integrity. Over the years, Buck Angel has made a big name for himself in the adult film industry. And now his new career in California's legal cannabis industry comes with an important mission. That's why I started my company, so that we could educate people around cannabis and why it is so important, especially for the LGBT community. On the latest episode of On Something, Buck Angel and the untold story of medical marijuana and the AIDS epidemic. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A man walked out of prison this summer for the first time in 24 years. Curtis Brooks had been behind bars since he was 15 for his part in a robbery that ended in murder. He'd been sentenced to life without parole, but was granted clemency. After Brooks' release, he said he'd never forget the victim, Christopher Ramos. People might think that I've done 24 years and now I'm I'm being released, so, you know, I'm moving on from this situation, but this is something that I have to carry with me every day. 
Well, we recently got a Colorado Wonders question about this case. And to understand the question, it's important to know that Brooks is African-American. A listener asked about the two white kids involved in the case. In essence, might race have played into the sentences? To answer that, we have CPR's Andrea Dukakis with us. She's covered the Brooks case for years. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ryan. Remind us about Curtis Brooks and the other teens involved in the crime. Brooks was one of four teenagers who tried to steal a car from Christopher Ramos. It was back in 1995. Somehow their plan went wrong, and one of the boys fired a shot that killed Ramos. Brooks had been handed a gun earlier and told to shoot it in the air as a distraction, which he did. He was convicted of first-degree murder and got life without the possibility of parole. Brooks and one of the teens are African-American. The other two boys are white. Okay, our Colorado Wonders question is, what happened to the white teenagers in this case? One of the white co-defendants was Michael Parks. He was 13 years old at the time, and he had stolen the guns the boys had from his father. Earlier in the day, he'd been on sort of a crime spree with the other white teenager and the other African-American teen. Curtis Brooks met up with the boys later that day. Parks, uh, again, he's 13 years old at the time, had a criminal history, but couldn't be charged as an adult because he was too young. He got the maximum juvenile sentence, which was five years in what's called the youth offender system, and he was released after four years. Okay, so there it seems like age is really what's determining his fate more than race. Right. Uh, What about the other white teen? The other white teen, Sean Steele, was 15 years old at the time. And as I said, he'd been part of that crime spree earlier in the day. He also had a prior criminal history. Steele was the only one in the case to get a plea bargain from the DA, so he got a more lenient term in prison. Then in 2011, Steele was granted clemency by Governor Bill Ritter and got out of prison not long after that. Curtis Brooks is the only one of the boys who didn't have a criminal record. Uh, But actually, the jurors weren't told that at the trial, and they were frustrated about that later. Now, uh, let's just remember, Brooks did not fire the fatal shot killing Ramos, but he was involved and he fired a gun as a distraction, correct? Correct. Okay. Uh, What about the other black juvenile in this case? Dion Harris, he was 15 years old. He was the one who fired the fatal shot. Harris's attorney argued for a plea bargain because Harris had been diagnosed with mental illness, but that didn't happen. Harris was charged and found guilty of first-degree murder, and like Brooks, got life without the possibility of parole. Harris is still serving his sentence, but a few things have changed since the boys were sentenced. Back in 2012, the Supreme Court ruled these automatic life-without-parole sentences for juveniles are unconstitutional, that they're cruel and unusual punishment. And a few years later, the court ruled the decision was retroactive. So Harris is eligible to be resentenced to life with the possibility of parole after 40 years. Defense attorneys have called this a miscarriage of justice. Uh, When you compare the sentences of the boys, the two white boys serving much shorter sentences than the two black ones. Yeah. Brooks's attorneys say, just look at the facts in the case. Two African-Americans sentenced to life without parole. One white kid who was the only one offered a plea deal. You also have the other white boy, 13 years old, who served just four years in a juvenile facility. Of course, sentencing in juvenile court is much different. And the other three were old enough to be tried as adults. What does the district attorney's office say about this? 
The current district attorney, George Brockler, wasn't DA at the time the boys were sentenced, uh, but he believes there are important distinctions. The two African-American boys definitely fired guns. The other white boy, Sean Steele, had a gun, but there's some question about whether he fired it at all. And as you've hinted, uh, there's been a dramatic shift, Andrea, in how juveniles are sentenced. Yeah. As I said, the Supreme Court has ruled several times in recent years that juveniles are different from adults and therefore should be sentenced differently. The justices have cited research on brain development that shows juveniles don't understand consequences the way adults do, that their frontal lobes aren't fully developed, uh, which involves several things, including the ability to empathize. How does this play out specifically here? Well, in Colorado, there were dozens of juveniles sentenced to life without parole who have or will be resentenced. One of those is Sam Mandez, who just got a new sentence. Mm. He originally got life without parole. It was for a robbery turned murder of an elderly woman in Greeley. Mandez was 14 then. He's 41 now. There isn't evidence linking him to the actual murder. Mandez says he broke a window to get into the woman's house and was on lookout while the other two boys went inside and ultimately killed the woman. Mandez spent years in solitary confinement, and it's reported the judge held back tears when she resentenced him. Ah, what was the new sentence? So he'll get 30 years with credit for time served. Uh, He could be out as early as 2023. Andrea, thanks for this. Thanks. CPR's Andrea Dukakis answering a Colorado Wonders question about a 1995 murder case. One of the defendants, Curtis Brooks, was released from prison this summer after serving 24 years of a life-without-parole sentence. Now, another Colorado Wonders question. This one prompted by wildfires in the state. A listener asks, why are wildfires like the Decker Fire near Salida allowed to burn while, quote, polluting the environment with huge billows of smoke extending 50-plus miles? while some inconsequential fires have full suppression strategies. He goes on, This is crazy and horrible for the environment and natural habitat. What goes into making these decisions, and who is held accountable for the damage to the environment, local economies, and health of the nearby residents? A lot to unpack there. CPR's Natalia Navarro has been looking into this for us. Uh, Glad to see you, Natalia. Glad to be here, Ryan. And before you answer this Colorado Wonders question, what is the wildfire situation right now in the state? The Decker Fire, which is the one our listener referenced, um, it has burned nearly 850 acres as of the last estimate. And that one was started by lightning. Hmm. Uh, There's also the McNay Fire in Larimer County that has burned about 500 acres east of Redfeather Lakes. And the other large one is the Hunt Fire northwest of Parachute, and it's burned about 3,000 acres. Crews are monitoring that fire's behavior to make sure it doesn't grow beyond the perimeter that they have established. Um, There's also two other fires burning in parts of Colorado, one near Rifle and another one near Craig. All right. To this Decker fire, uh, as the example our listener points to, uh, why let it burn, so to speak? Land managers made that decision because the wildfire is in a contained area. It's all in National Forest Service land in the Sangre de Cristo wilderness. And I spoke to the Decker Fire spokesman, Brant Porter. He told me that the fire will help clear dangerous fuels and support the health of the forest in the long term. Essentially, the whole fire is being managed at this point to get rid of beetle kill. 
along the ridge within the wilderness area. Mm-hmm. A good bit of that slope, that western-facing slope in there, a high percentage of that is, is beetle-killed trees that are either standing or have been blown down, which really poses a risk to the communities and the values at risk as far as structures and that sort of thing in an unmanaged type fire situation like we saw across the state last year. So the managers here are taking this opportunity to manage that fire where conditions are better than we saw pretty much all summer last year. And getting those fuels off the landscape is really an investment for the future for the community here in in doing some protection against the catastrophic fire. Porter also told me that there is a misperception about this let it burn concept that wildfires are left to burn on their own. He said even when there's not an active suppression of the fires, um, it's on purpose. So it's being managed in a way to where they can remove that all that dead fuel from the landscape and also introduce fire into the ecosystem that's ultimately a fire-dependent ecosystem that, that hasn't had fire in it for quite a long time. So it's going to provide ecological benefits for, for that wilderness area. To be clear, this was not a prescribed burn. The Decker fire was sparked by lightning. But the idea is that there is intentionality to let it burn. Uh, okay, to the other part of the listener's question uh, about health. I mean, maybe this is good for the ecosystem, but the, you know, the air we breathe. What about that? Right. The health concerns during fires are caused by fine particulates that get into the air. Scott Landis is with the Colorado Air Pollution Control Division, and he told me that those particulates are easy to inhale, but very difficult to exhale. Oh, that doesn't sound good. (laughs) No. (laughs) They cause respiratory issues, especially for people with heart conditions. Symptoms for those people include shortness of breath and even chest pains. Our number one concern with wildfires is, is certainly the smoke. That's what CDPHE and the Air Pollution Control Division focuses on. Um, we, we look at fires, um, how they're behaving, how much smoke they're producing, and look at communities that are going to be impacted by that smoke. So when we do see large wildfires uh, break out, uh, the forecasting group here at the Air Pollution Control Division, our first focus is on wildfire smoke. CDPHE, that's the state health department. Um, And what he's saying, that's why the state issues air quality advisories, which it did last week for the fires in the southern part of the state. That's including the Decker fire. Um, And if there is an advisory issued, Landis says people in the affected areas should stay indoors, avoid air conditioners that pull in that outside air with all the smoke in it. Okay, so that's a harder request sometimes than others, I suppose, if it's warm outside. Yeah. Another option, though, is to pick a room in your home and use an air filtration system in that room during an advisory to keep that air clean. Right now, there are no advisories in effect for Colorado. I suppose this is where the idea of prescribed burns comes into play. I mean, they reduce the chances of naturally occurring fires that, you know, might burn hotter, faster, farther, because all that underbrush wasn't cleared away. Uh, That itself could lead to health concerns, right? Yes. The National Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, and the National Park Service all have prescribed burn programs designed to do the same thing as we've seen from these lightning-caused fires burning right now in the state. Overall, the idea is to take advantage of better weather conditions and lower drought conditions to reduce the fire risk. But the trade-off is the smoke that comes with any burn. Overall, how has this state fared with wildfires so far this year, Natalia? I know there have been much worse years, but uh, what do we know? 
Yeah, according to the Rocky Mountain Area Coordination Center, uh, so far this year there have been 210 human-caused wildfires, and they've burned about 14,500 acres. The National Interagency Fire Center says the fire season has been actually, like you said, well below average across the entire state, especially compared to last year. I should note that last year's fire season was one of the worst on record in the state. Thanks, Natalia. Thank you. CPR's Natalia Navarro looking into why land managers choose to let some wildfires burn. So what do you wonder about in Colorado? Ask us through Colorado Wonders at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Boulder is home to one of only a handful of companies in the world that make loom and spinning wheels. Shacked Spindle Company marks its 50th anniversary this week. It caters to hand weavers and spinners across North America, Europe, Japan, and Taiwan. We first profiled the company on their 40th anniversary. That's when I learned Shacked's founders knew almost nothing about the craft when they started out. But this has grown into a sophisticated operation. We're making uh, everything for hand weaving from a small loom that would be, say, six inches wide to a loom that is six feet wide. We make all the accessories, and we also manufacture a variety of spinning equipment. Barry Schacht is a founder of Schacht Spindle Company and its CEO. The hand weaving industry is a very niche industry, very small. Throughout the world, there are really only five companies of any size. The largest is probably a company in New Zealand, where the second largest Schacht's goal is to take an ancient craft, the making and weaving of fabric, and find a place for it in modern life. Probably the first yarns were spun 5,000 years ago. The first fabrics were woven not too long after that. Um, We're talking about uh, primary covering of the human body, uh, sacks to carry products in and goods. What we're doing, though, is we've made that a contemporary craft and our customer is very involved in contemporary. We're not doing something that is for reenactment. We're doing something that's in everyday use by the craftsperson to create very modern textiles. Well, away from the hustle and bustle of the production floor, I sat down with Barry Schacht in his office. Well, Barry, this is an unusual business, uh, to say the least. How did you come to make your first spinning wheel, your first loom? Well, the product that we first made was a spindle, and it was a happenstance. I had been fired from a job at the university. I had mowed a piece symbol into the front lawn of the student union, and a couple of the regents thought that was inappropriate, so I got fired. Was this at CU? This was at CU. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I was a groundskeeper. I had uh, some spare time, and a girlfriend of my brother's wanted to learn how to spin and weave. Mm-hmm. We heard about somebody in Loveland. We drove up there and met a person um, who had a ranch and was raising sheep. And with sheep, she obviously had the raw material you need. She had the raw materials for that. And she also had a uh, father who used to be making these little spindles for her. And he could no longer do it. She asked us if us uh, guys who obviously had a lot of spare time could do that. So we said, sure. How many do you want? How much do you pay? Had you ever heard of a spindle? Or, or I, I had you, not. Okay. I had, I had not. And it turned out they were a doorknob with a wooden dowel in it. 
And I said, sure, I could make it. So we ordered uh, 200 of these doorknobs. The guy asked who they were for, and I said, um, knowing that I had to have a name that would give me wholesale price, Shacked Spindle Company. We did a great job. We did it on time. And then she said to us, why don't you make a loom? And we said, what's a loom? What's a loom? She taught us what a loom was. And uh, we started to uh, make a couple prototypes, and she was very enthusiastic even for the terrible things that we made. We had no tools, really. Now, a loom is a good uh, deal larger than a spindle. I mean, that, that's a whole other world that you took on there. It's very different, except that what we were making were the simplest of looms, basically a wooden frame with a couple of little devices to hold some strings. Was there much demand for these products at that, at that time? At the time we got into it, the Back to the Earth movement was just taking hold. The Back to the Earth movement. Yeah, and this is the whole Earth catalog. Uh, people were dropping out of business. They were becoming craftspeople. We caught the start of that. So we got carried, and then one day we realized that this was a significant way and a fun way to make a living. You got carried. In other words, stores picked up your products. Yeah, yeah. There were stores opening, you know, 10 a week for a while. Well, you on your desk in the office here have that first spindle. Yeah, I do. I keep it in the office, keep it in view as a reminder of uh, where we came from. Well, I want to bring your wife, Jane, into the conversation, who runs the company with you. And Jane, how did you get involved? I first started weaving as an exchange student in Iceland. And I had gone to home ex school, and I walked into this room full of looms. And I knew that's what I was going to do in my life. But it wasn't until I came to Boulder in 1976 and I f took my first weaving class that I really learned how to weave. Maybe we should say what a loom is and define that. Sure. So um, you, you walked into a room full of them and you, and you heard angels singing, essentially. Yes. What, what, what was it about this equipment that so captivated you? I think it was the process of weaving, the, the idea of making cloth, of starting with yarns. It's, it seems so basic. If you define what a loom is, essentially it's a frame that holds yarn under tension. It can be as simple as just a, a picture frame or as complicated as a computer-controlled machine. And most people can relate to a loom because they used a potholder loom as a child. That is a very simple form of a weaving loom. And you were naturally attracted to a company like this, and I suppose well, to Barry for that reason. I met Barry at the weaving shop. What could be more wonderful than that? Is this in Boulder? Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, we met, and I was a weaver, and what could be more wonderful than to have a husband or, or a boyfriend at that time <laughs> um, making tools that I needed? Well, let's look at some of these tools up close. Jane, there's really a rhythm to this, isn't there? Yes, and that's one thing I really love about weaving. Throwing the shuttle back and forth, pulling the beater forward, stepping on the treadles and watching the harnesses go up. And you can see when I'm throwing the shuttle, there's a space. And each time I press down on the treadle, the harnesses go up and opens the shed, and I throw the shuttle through from one side of the web to the other. Now, what is the shuttle? The shuttle is a boat-like device. That's what it looks like, and this is actually called a boat shuttle. Looks like a, yeah, like a canoe. 
and it has a hollowed out center and inside is a bobbin with yarn wound around that and it spins when I throw the shuttle the bobbin spins and the yarn unwinds. I should say it, ha- it has its own vocabulary doesn't it? Oh there's a lot of words. <laughs> Not only do the terms of weaving have um, their own vocabulary, but if you look into almost every piece of literature written, the metaphor of of, uh, words and the usage of words is just abundant with the uh, textile uh, metaphor. Well, for example, you've probably heard the word spinster. Yeah. Where does that word come from? A spinster was traditionally the single woman, unmarried woman that lived in the household, and her primary job was spinning. So now today, when you speak of a spinster, you're talking about an unmarried woman. Well, traditionally, she was that person that did the spinning. Well, now that you mentioned spinning, we've, we've heard a loom. What about a spinning wheel? So in spinning, you're starting at the very beginning with raw fiber. This is what's just basically off the animal. Off the animal or the plant. So this happens to be wool. And then what the spinning wheel does is help me mechanically add twist to this fiber. So once I have twist in the fiber, I've made yarn. You've made yarn from the raw material. Imagine if you were doing someone's hair and you squeeze together, say, 20 hairs. You'd be creating a kind of dense mass. Yeah. Uh, That's sort of what you're doing. Exactly. Okay. So Barry, it was the it was the back to earth movement that you rode in the beginning of the business. Has the market changed? Yeah, the, the market grew until a high point, probably in about 1984, and there were hundreds of thousands of people doing the craft. There were hundred loom companies, spinning wheel companies all over the world. And um, not only were we able to ride the beginning of this that gave us the orders we needed, but we also were able to continue on as the market went down. Would we be surprised by who weaves today? I think you would be. It's a broad spectrum of people. You probably wouldn't be surprised to know that 97% are women, but they range from teenagers to college students, young professional women, married people, and um, women that are retired and perhaps are taking up a craft or taking it up again after having um, had a professional life and then wanting to get back to weaving. We're seeing a lot of that now. Jane Patrick and her husband, Barry Schacht, they own Schacht Spindle Company in Boulder, one of the world's largest makers of hand looms and spinning wheels. Since we first spoke, the company has grown from 30 to 50 employees. Tomorrow, they celebrate their 50th year in business. We want your questions about gardening. As we head into fall, what would you like to know about tending to your plants, planning for next season? Send your questions to news at CPR.org, news at CPR.org, or you can tweet us at Colorado Matters. And finally today, one of Colorado's biggest bands is back with a new album and a new lineup. No one said enough is enough. 
This is Gloria by the Lumineers, the Denver band that found worldwide fame in 2012 with the song Ho Hey. The Lumineers have released three, the follow-up to their chart-topping sophomore album Cleopatra. It's their first full-length album without cellist Neela Pekarik, who left the band last year to pursue a solo career. Three finds the typically upbeat folk rock band singing about heavier themes. It's a concept album divided into three parts that details the lives of the Sparks family and how addiction tears them apart. The characters are fictional, but the lyrics draw from the real lives of Lumineer's co-founders Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freights. They've both lost friends and family to drug addiction. Freights recently told Morning Edition he's seen how one person's addiction can damage many people's lives. With drug addiction or alcoholism, it really affects the individual, and then it has a sort of like, you know, fallout effect. And much similar to the effects of, you know, a radiation bomb, it over time and over years and years, it continually uh, tends to affect people, loved ones. And they wrote all these prescriptions, they wrote me off like a heel. Yeah, the doctors with their medicine left me to rock in my field. From the destruction out of the flame, you need a villain. Give me a name. The Lumineers embark on a North American tour next year. Their new album is Three. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.